0: Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant.
1: This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Friday night on E60 on ESPN, a new show premiered. Imperfect, the Roy Halliday story, reported by my colleague and friend and frequent guest here on the Sporting Life, John Barr. And John is going to join us now to talk about Roy Halliday and the reporting for this extraordinary show. John, thank you for being with us.
0: Happy to be here, Jeremy. Thank you.
1: John, you know, Roy Halliday was one of those players in baseball history um who who was bigger than just his numbers in um, kind of the way that Willie Mays was too there was this um, aura about him uh, he was um, he was tough he was um, he was somebody who seemed to represent all of the competitive traits you would want in a top-level professional athlete but who was he as a man?
0: Well, that's that's really the the central theme of our story. There were two Roy Hallidays. There was the Halliday. there were there was the Roy Halliday that was projected to the world, this stoic workhorse who whose you know, work ethic was the stuff of legend in baseball circles. Uh, and then there was the Roy Halliday away from the baseball field. And you know, much of our story is driven by uh, a candid and a far-reaching interview with Brandy Halliday, Roy's widow. And she, shared with us in detail uh, how Roy struggled with pain and addiction. He had two separate stints in inpatient drug treatment. And she also shared with us how he struggled with mental health issues. He struggled with depression and anxiety, attention deficit disorder. Um, And this is something that, that, you know, some of those issues trace back to Roy's childhood, his his early struggles as a professional athlete. Uh, But they continued to, to, it's something he continued to, right up until the time of, of his death in november of 2017 so um that's really the guts of what this story is about it's it's the roy halliday we never knew
1: as you put it in the show and again it's imperfect the roy halliday story um which premiered friday night you say that When he comes, uh, when he gets back to the majors in 2001, after having been down in the minors, after kind of a disastrous start to his major league career in 98, 99 and 2000, he's, he's a different person. Uh, Refresh our memory. Who, who was Roy Halladay in those first few years as major leaguer? What kind of pitcher was he?
0: Well, he caught lightning in a bottle in his second start. He was one one out removed from a no-hitter in his second start as a Toronto Blue Jay, but in the year 2000, as you referenced, he had an absolutely disastrous year. His 10.64 ERA over the course of the 2000 season remains the highest ERA in Major League Baseball history for any pitcher with at least 50 innings. So think about that for a moment. This is a guy who carved out a Hall of Fame career. From 2002 to 2011, he was amazing. You know, he led the major leagues in uh, wins, in uh, complete games, in shutouts. But during that 2000 season, he was just awful. And the Jays, frankly, didn't know what to do with him. I mean, the guy was a first-round pick. uh, So they sent him all the way down to Class A ball. And that's where Roy had to reinvent himself. From a baseball standpoint, he lowered his arm slot from about, he was too over the top in his delivery, and hitters were just teeing off on his fastball in particular because they were picking the ball up out of his hand too easily. So he lowered his arm slot down to about 2 o'clock, and that added some devastating movement to his fastball. It it would break away from right-handed hitters and go down into the zone, and that was really his bread-and-butter pitch. He he had a number of great pitches, but but that was his bread-and-butter. That's what he did from a baseball standpoint, but from a, from a psychological standpoint, you know, the story's been oft retold of how Brandy uh, went out one night when Roy was really at an all-time low and picked up a copy of Harvey Dorfman's "The Mental ABCs of Pitching," and she credits that book with saving his career and really saving their marriage.
1: I didn't know that. I, I knew Harvey Dorfman well. He was, uh, he was an interesting guy who worked with a lot of athletes who were having issues. Uh, I met him doing a story about guys with Steve Blass syndrome and how I think he treated Mark Wallers, among others. Um, fascinating, fascinating guy. Um, no longer with us. We're speaking with John Barr about his new E60 one hour special, Imperfect, the Roy Halliday story. And one of the things that struck me, um, Alex Rodriguez is one of the voices in the show. And he calls Halliday in the show, correct me if I'm wrong, John, one of the five best starting pitchers in baseball history. If you were going to name an all-time all-star team, Alex Rodriguez, who knows baseball, would would put Halliday, I mean, maybe that's hyperbole, but that's how, that's how good he was. I mean, and for a full decade, he was, I mean, he was, as Alex puts it, I think in these words, the epitome of a starting pitcher.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, from 2002 to 2011, he had 30 more complete games than his next closest competitor, who, by the way, was CeCe Sabathia. I mean, that's sort of the baseball equivalent of lapping the field. He he was dominant, and, you know, he toiled, unfortunately for him, uh, in, you know, I guess relative obscurity in Toronto. You think about the era, right? Think about the steady diet of Red Sox and Yankees, Batters that he had to face. And yet he was still that good. And so it was, it was really, um, it was a pivotal moment in his career. And, and I know the ho- certainly his hope and the hope of many who supported his career through the years, that when he was traded to Philadelphia in late 2009, a team that was coming up back-to-back World Series appearances, that he would finally be able to complete that other gaping hole, the, the gaping hole that existed in his resume at that point, which was no postseason baseball. He'd never been to the postseason. and Of course, we all know what happened in his very first postseason start. He did something that was just historic. He threw a no-hitter, only the second no-hitter ever in postseason history. That's who Roy Halliday was.
1: What were the first signs um, that despite all of this success, there was something fundamentally wrong it, 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 emotionally with Roy?
0: Yeah, well, Brandy talked very openly about how early on, during that disastrous 2000 season, where he just really wondered if he was going to last as a professional baseball player, how he started drinking heavily. Um, in fact, he, Toronto teammates, according to Brandy, had nicknamed him "Mini Bar." For his habit of drinking heavily on the road, the team sent him to counseling, uh, in part to try to get his head right. You know, Roy had never failed; he didn't know what it was like to fail, and he needed to learn how to fail. So that was part of it. But but he, they also sent him to counseling to, to deal with his drinking, and and it turned around. He he actually you know, according to Brandy, overcompensated the other way. He said he was afraid to even have a drink around anybody with the team for a few years. Um, But he also suffered from anxiety. Brandy talked about how amped up he would get on the nights before he pitched. And, you know, that's not uncommon for pitchers, but but it ran deeper than that. There was a real social anxiety that he dealt with as well, according to Brandy. He didn't enjoy being in the spotlight. He didn't enjoy the public appearances that come with being a professional athlete. You know, he's a guy the mound is such a lonely place and it's the ultimate in the spotlight job. And he wasn't wired in such a way that he relished that part of it. And that might be one of the reasons why he was so laser focused. He needed to shut all of that stuff out. And, and, and that's, but that's what he dealt with. That's what he dealt with away from the field. And then we now know that he sought treatment from a psychiatrist in retirement and also uh, was treated for depression and anxiety. So, he had a number of issues that he dealt with through the years. And, you know, when you kind of factor that into the mix and realize that he competed at the level he competed at for so many years, it's kind of even more impressive when you consider what he was dealing with psychologically.
1: How does his career start winding down early in the second decade of the 21st century?
0: Yeah. So he, you know, he was dominant in 2010, had an. A, an impressive year as well by any measure in 2011. Uh, unfortunately, never did reach the World Series as as he had hoped to after that trade to, the, to Philadelphia. Uh, but that's really where it ended. Uh, Brandy talked about that uh, game. It was the uh, decisive game against the St. Louis Cardinals in the National League Division Series in 2011, where he was outdueled by his good friend and former teammate with the Blue Jays, Chris Carpenter. Um, in a, in a one nothing game, Roy only gave up one run through 126 pitches that night, but Carpenter got the better of him. He, he pitched a complete game shutout. It was in that game, Brandy says, that he felt his back pop. And when he came home that night, she says, at one point he sneezed and his body lurched forward and he was on all fours and he was in so much pain in his back that he was unable to get up. He, he couldn't. He couldn't pick himself up. It turns out Roy was suffering from PARS fractures, which are stress fractures in his back. He proceeded then, Jeremy, to pitch the final two seasons, or at least try to pitch the final two seasons of his career as a Philly in 2012 and 2013 with a broken back. Uh, You know, his back injury ultimately led to shoulder issues. He had shoulder surgery. Uh, But the 2012-2013 seasons are when Halliday, his body started to fail him. And and the drop-off was stunning for somebody who had been so good for so long to just suddenly look human. uh, It was startling to a number of people. And what we now know is starting in the spring of 2012, during that spring training, that is when he first, according to Brandy, First started taking prescription pain pills to manage his pain.
1: So he retires in 2013, shortly after not completing a stint in rehab. Um, his baseball career is over. He's what 35, 36 years old. 36.
0: He was at that point. He's 36 years old. Yeah.
1: How did he adapt to retirement?
0: Not well. Not well at all. You know, he. Um, you know, I, again, I, I can't. I think one of the things that will come as a surprise to Philadelphia fans in particular is the fact that, you know, he did start taking prescription pain pills and did struggle with his abuse of those pills. And I don't say abuse in the sense that he was looking to get high. It's just that his body, according to his wife, became chemically dependent on the drugs. He was taking these drugs so he could get out there every fifth day and pitch. And, you know, the Phillies we now know were aware of it a few a few teammates approached someone with the team in 2013 they had a player who Roy respects talk to him about it in 2013 and but then in, and then as you mentioned he went to inpatient treatment after the season completed in 2013 but prior to his retirement press conference but after he retired according to his wife he was just lost he just he only knew baseball. He, he, you know, the natural rhythms of the season—that was all he knew. He didn't know how to self-identify as anything else, um, and and he struggled. He struggled with pain, and ultimately, that pain led to depression, and and, and another stint in inpatient drug treatment in early two thousand fifteen. According to
1: Brandy, he grew up flying planes. His father was a corporate pilot. We're speaking to John Barr about imperfect the Roy Halladay story. We know of course that he died piloting his own plane, but there are a lot of details in the show that most of us are unaware of. Um, he he just bought this. He'd just taken delivery of this plane. I mean, was it five weeks beforehand?
0: Yeah, that's that's correct. Now he he also had been lusting after that plane, if you will, for two years. He Uh, He started, I think his first post about the Icon A5, which is the aircraft we're talking about, was was dating back to 2015, and he was able to go through flight training uh, in California, where the company's headquartered, and in Florida, on an Icon A5, not the one he ultimately purchased, but... You know, he, he had more than 51 hours of flying that plane. So that,
1: he'd been training on it. He'd been training on it. He'd been dreaming about this plane. He loved flying. It's a place where he found some kind of serenity. Um, but he had also been, you established in the film, reckless, dangerous. That's right. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's not even taking into consideration um, the levels of drugs that were in his system when he was flying, certainly on that last day.
0: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, his father expressed concerns to National Transportation and Safety Board uh, investigators uh, about Roy's behavior as a pilot, even before he got the Icon A5 in October 2017. Roy, prior to that, owned two single-propeller Cessnas, and his father said, you know, there were times when Roy would, for example, fly long distances over water, which, uh, in his father's estimation, And his father, by the way, is a corporate pilot with some 25,000 hours. He taught Roy how to fly. Uh, So in his estimation, Roy was engaging in behavior that perhaps a more experienced pilot wouldn't. And he said he cautioned him um, that there's really no margin for error in, in aviation. And after getting the Icon A-5 in October of 2017, Roy kept talking about how sporty it was. It, it, you know, it's this two-seat, light-sport, amphibious aircraft. Um, and his father's concern was, uh, you know, that it might tempt Roy to, to take chances that he didn't need to take. And we now know from a, a number of witnesses and from NTSB investigators that in the days and weeks preceding November seventh, 2017, Roy was flying recklessly. Some 12 days before the crash that claimed his life, we know he flew under the Tampa Skyway Bridge, which only has 180 feet of clearance over the water. Uh, you know, it's just not something a responsible pilot does, and it's against FAA regulations. You're just not supposed to do that, but but he did it.
1: John, um, you also deal with, uh, in the show, the drugs that were in Roy Halladay's system. You spoke to four experts about what they think the degree of impairment might have been while he was flying on that last day. Can you tell us uh, what, what they said to you?
0: Sure. Yeah. We, we reached out to three independent forensic pathologists and then we also spoke with the medical examiner who conducted Roy's autopsy and generated the, the toxicology report. And, you know, they differed in, in terms of their characterization a bit uh, by a matter of degrees, but, uh, Suffice it to say that all four of those medical professionals are of the opinion that more likely than not, Halliday was impaired on the day he crashed. Um, We know that he had in his system uh, sleeping medication, an antidepressant, a muscle relaxer, uh, an anti-anxiety medication, and he also had high levels of amphetamine, which more likely than not stem from Uh, an attention deficit disorder drug Adderall that he was prescribed according to his medical records. So the medical professionals we consulted believe that that he was impaired. Um, We also know from witnesses that he was flying low again over the water and over houses that day. And in his final, the final three minutes of his flight, he engaged in three maneuvers. He was at that point over the Gulf of Mexico kind of tracking the shoreline and, he did three steep climbs followed by steep dives, and on his final ascent, he, he got up to a height of approximately 500 feet, and the plane was almost vertical. The plane then turned downward and, and started hurtling downward toward the gulf. I spoke to a fisherman, Jeremy, who actually saw the plane impact the water. He said he is certain that he saw the nose pull up toward the end, that that it appeared as if Roy was trying to pull up, uh, but he wasn't able to pull up. He impacted the water at a forty five degree angle with the wings level and in four to five feet of water um, he died the official cause of death was listed as blunt force trauma and drowning um but but yeah it's um there's a lot that happened that day and 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 Brandy Halliday, in her interview with us, said that he did not appear impaired. And in her words, I know what that looks like. That's that's a quote from Brandy about how Roy looked that morning. Um, But again, medical professionals uh, provided us with a different point
1: of view. Well, it's a compelling show and obviously a tragic story. John Barr, the SPN reporter, the new E60 is imperfect, the Roy Halliday story. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Jeremy Schaap, and you can listen to new editions of The Sporting Life every Saturday and Sunday morning on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app, beginning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time.